Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. David Champion on the RiderFlex podcast today. David, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Beautiful day in Denver, as you know. Pleasure to be here with you. It's nice, isn't it? Oh, what was it? Almost 50 degrees today? I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's make the most of it. Apparently, snow's coming in tomorrow, huh? I know. By the way, for the listeners, we're recording this on January 10th, 2023. And yeah, we had a little break in the action here, a little warmer day today, which was nice. I did the walk around the block with, with Ryder, my dog, named after Ryder Flex, got outside for a bit of you. Did you get outside for just a bit today at some point? I, I did. I have a two-year-old, so it's always a delight to walk her to the Montessori school around the block. And uh, she she was out there in a t-shirt. She, she never wants to put her coat on. <laughs> Very good. David, before we get into uh, Maya Health, um, tell us about you, David Champion. Family, siblings, mom, dad, where you grew up. Give us some personal history, if you don't mind. <laughs> I'll sum it up in one word, eclectic, uh, not a simple story. So how long do we have? <laughs> Go for it, man. Give us a, yeah, tell us. Yeah, well, uh, my parents met in Papua New Guinea. So my mom had grown up in Kenya. She's fourth generation Kenyan. Uh, my dad had grown up in Ireland. Uh, both of them were really the first in their families for many generations to leave where they where, where they were and, and really adventure across the world and through various other stops in Europe, they made their way to Papua New Guinea separately, which is where they met. And when uh, a year later, they were ready to have me, they flew back to England. So I was born in England for medical purposes, but really a week or two later, flew back to Papua New Guinea. And for four years, I grew up there. So for those who don't know, Papua New Guinea is half of an island, the other half being Indonesian, and that's off the northeast coast of Australia. So very remote, um, very, very interesting indigenous cultures and expatriate cultures and commercial culture and uh, such a, a fascinating place. A lot of anthropologists see Papua New Guinea as one of the sort of like origins of many of the cultural uh, premises in our in our society. Mm-hmm. So very interesting kind of reflecting on that. But I left when I was four. We moved to Portugal. Uh, I was there for six years with, with my parents' work. And then when my parents decided to move in their separate ways, uh, I was about nine and, and we moved to Scotland, my mom and me. And I grew up throughout my teens in Scotland and I, I consider myself Scottish. My grandfather on her side and his uh, lineage is Scottish. I wore a kilt at my wedding uh, last cool. summer cool. and had a Gaelic ritual, bloodlet- bloodletting ritual. Um, love haggis, love whiskey, and so many other things about that country. But that journey took me to uh, Kenya with my mom. I spent time there. I learned Swahili. I really became familiar and, and felt like Africa is a home for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I studied at university, studied architecture at Cambridge, and that led me to work as an architect in New York City. So as a 
young uh, hustler and eyes wide open sort of enthusiast. I moved over to Manhattan, um, found my own way as a young adult there. And it was in New York that I really started to realize that I love architecture. I love that by learning architecture, I'd also learned philosophy and history and mythology and technology and physics and mathematics and so many other uh, other sort of aspects of what goes into that profession. And I also came to realize in New York that through buildings, I might be able to impact a few thousand people, whereas through technology, I might mm. be able to impact millions of people. Mm. And interestingly, there are a lot of parallels between architectural design and, for example, user experience design for the apps and the websites we use on our screens. So many parallels there. So it was an easier transition than than one might imagine. And that led me into entrepreneurship. Um, my first company as a 22-year-old in New York uh, was a big learning opportunity. And then several other attempts after that, that ultimately led me to build uh, a company called Baker Technologies, which we co-founded in Denver. And that was why I moved here about six years ago and and started my life in Colorado and uh, went on to to build that technology company to be quite large. Uh, I'll, I'll pause there, but that, that makes for a natural segue into okay. what we're doing here at Maya. Okay, before we get into Maya, let me ask you a couple of questions backing up on the personal stuff. So wh what did your mom and dad do that generated these moves to different countries? What were they doing for a living? Curious. Most people ask if it was a military or diplomatic type affair, nothing like that. Uh, my grandfather was uh, a diplomat at the embassy, but my parents, my mom was just a natural born adventurer. My father worked in uh, tax consultancy with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and, and that was one of the major reasons for moving from Papua New Guinea to Portugal uh, after, after they broke up the move to Scotland was because of family reasons and uh, and then after that, really, my mom's desire to return to Kenya, she had left when she was 13, never been back. So when I graduated high school, it was our opportunity to really go and experience life in East Africa, which was uh, a I huge see. gift. Okay. okay. Uh, so no siblings? I have a half-sister who's 10 years older. We're very, very close, and she lives in England. And she lives in England. Okay. And your dad? Are you close to your dad at all? I'm glad you asked. You know, we weren't. When my parents broke up, I actually decided not to talk to him at all. Uh, that was why. Why? It was interesting. I, I think often at a, at the impressionable young age of eight or nine, children can easily pick favorites or perhaps yes. be more yes. uh, impacted or persuaded by one parent who might have a stronger, louder voice. And it just so happened that my mom had my ear at that time. More than my father did so i really took her side saw her side of the story um you know later she regretted that she had been um yeah. uh, operating in that way but she was she was hurt she was heartbroken you know i, I hold no grudge or blame but it did mean that i i severed relationship with him for several years and fortunately when i was about 14 we really rekindled and started building a relationship and then when my mother passed away, I was 18, and he he flew out to Kenya for her funeral. We bonded in a deeper way there. Oh wow! I'm sorry, your mom. So your mom passed pretty early then. How old was she? She was 57, and interestingly, yep, she had more gas in the tank, but she also had lived such a rich and fulfilling lifestyle, uh, and really 
massive life adventure, countless stories cool. and wisdom um, and joy in her life. And I feel that there was almost a cosmic um, grace with which she passed. Uh, it was not out of choice. It was a complete accident, very unexpected. But oh. she she went in a way that um, very quickly I was able to integrate as a positive thing, mainly for her, obviously not for me, I missed her dearly, but, but for her, I, I saw her being at almost the apex of her life and then growing into her sixties as a single white woman in a foreign country with diminishing personal resources. I found sort of, I found it quite easy to imagine that her life would have become quite difficult as an elder person. And so I was almost happy for her that she went at this pinnacle of her existence and she went in a in a way that was relatively pain-free. And so uh, so, so that's just what it was. I think it was one of the first mm-hmm. lessons I I was given to simply accept what's happening. And, you know, of course, everyone's within their rights to create whatever emotional mm-hmm. uh, response to, to life's unfolding. But I just chose that it was a positive thing and moved forward from there. And, uh, yeah. Isn't, isn't it interesting, you know, I I'm 55. And one of the things when I do my meditation and, and prayers in the morning, and I kind of meditate, do my exercises, I always have this little thing where I always ask whatever powers that be, I always ask for the quick for the quick and painless death. If 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 death is coming my way, please make it quick and painless, or as quick and painless as possible. Um, and I think as you get older, I know for me, as you, as I get older and now that I'm getting older, I have friends that have problems or, you know, whatever that people get sick as they get older. And I always think, man, I do not want to go slow. Like I don't want to get diagnosed with something and then 10 years of hell, like, please just let me fall off a cliff or something. I don't know anything. I want to go fast. So yeah, to your point, um, maybe it was a blessing uh, in disguise, right? Maybe for her to go quickly. Well, I'm, so that affected you at 18. Boy, that's a that's a major emotional hit because you're what just graduated high school. Were you in college already? Were you about to go? What was the timeline there? I had taken a gap year, which in hindsight was a wonderful opportunity to spend real time with her. You know, as a high right. school student or a college student, you're not that focused on a relationship with your parents, whereas I had moved with my mom to a foreign land, really just lived and worked with her all day, every day. We were, we were already as close as, as this, but we, we really de- deepened our relationship then. And, um, and she got to see me becoming an adult. You know, she got to see that I was setting myself up for a positive future and being a, becoming a responsible person. And uh, my sister, meanwhile, was uh, studying developmental cognitive neuroscience and becoming a professor at a university. So she also had that pride and wow. knowledge that her two kids were doing so well. Um, that's another reason that I think it was an apex of her life was just, you know, what better feeling than knowing that your offspring are, are, are okay and they're doing well. And that, that piece that must come, I know now as a parent, you know, is, is, is incredibly deep. So yeah, we got to deepen our relationship there and I was so proud of her. So you're, you're married now and you got a two-year-old. Is that right? Exactly. Got married last summer in Austria uh-huh. in a beautiful Renaissance castle. And my wife, Lana, and I gave birth about two and a half years ago to a little, we call her our, uh, our 
<laughs> coronial generation baby. <laughs> <laughs> and her name is Savannah. She's an absolute delight. And how did you meet your wife? We met in New York about eight years ago and we were friends for two years, deepened our relationship as friends and then naturally started to cultivate a romance just around the same time I was moving to Denver, which made for an exciting long distance plus yep. sort of international dating for eight eight months. And uh, fortunately, she chose to move here and, and follow me into uh, this new chapter of life. And we've been extremely happy ever since. Is her background, does she happen to come from Scottish or Irish or what? what what's her background? More more uh, folds in this canvas. She is uh, half Russian, half Ukrainian, which is obviously a very interesting wow. combination wow. at this wow. moment in time. Right? Um, yeah, Russian father, Ukrainian mother, grew up really? in both places, and then in Hungary, then in uh, then in Austria. So she speaks Russian. She speaks Russian, uh, Hungarian, German, and English. And now we're learning Spanish. So she, she's an incredibly gifted person who became a uh, entrepreneur at a young age as well. She's a graphic artist and designer. Um, she does generative art. She looks at nature and finds mathematical pr mm -hmm. principles in nature mm -hmm. and builds everything from lamps and light installations to jewelry, to sculptures and more. Okay. If I had the next dinner party I have where I need to invite interesting people that can work the crowd, I'm inviting you and your wife for sure. <laughs> invite her at least. I don't know if I can add much. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. I love all that. By the way, is Braveheart your all-time favorite movie? I'm guessing. Got to be one of them. You know, there's a scene in Braveheart that they found. I saw this later, in, many years later, that uh, they had forgotten to edit out this one scene where all the all the the Scots are at battle on the on the field, and there's, if you look closely in the background, a, a row of trees and a red Volvo driving <laughs> through the. Through <laughs> now the I have. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I have seen a clip where there's an airplane in the shot, and Mel Gibson is standing, and they're on the battlefield and up up at the top right. You can see an airplane. Uh, I've seen that. Were we to say that's not how history went down? I mean, yeah. <laughs> by the way, by the way, I've probably seen it fifty times. One of my all times. It's got to be my top three. Um, okay, very cool. I really appreciate you sharing uh, some of that personal uh, journey. Uh, and and nothing against New York. I've been there many times, but Colorado's pretty hard to beat, right? I mean, absolutely. Do you, you love living here? I mean, tell me, what is it? Uh, is this it for you? I was so reluctant to move to Colorado. I have to say, I'd been traveling here Monday to Thursday every second week from New York while building my last company, and I just saw Colorado as you know a, a, a place to live if you're older, or if you want to have a slow-paced life, or if you want to walk your dog in down to the brewery, and and you know really, really stereotyped unfairly. I want to make it clear that is not how I see Colorado now, but I was, I was quite judgmental coming from New York where like everything is, is everything different is like pace. This. Yeah, yeah. Very different. And New York was perfect for my twenties, but I absolutely adore this city. I love the community here. I love the depth of relationships. I love the, 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 the culture that exists here and has been really, really sort of nurtured for so many centuries and, and it's powerful. However, I've started to look at um, how I assess different places in the world, especially cities slightly differently than I used to. I used to be much more momentary where I would think, oh, mm -hmm. this place is fun, so it must be mm -hmm. good. And the way I now see cities is in the in terms of velocity. And so velocity is not just 
how fast paced or how how good something is, but it's the rate of change in a way. It's, mm. it's, it's assessing how quickly is this place improving. And I don't know if there's anywhere else in the country that has the velocity of Denver in terms of food, music, art, ex, you know, the exercise culture, the outdoors culture, the indoor culture, the technology scene, the innovation and entrepreneurship, the finance, obviously real estate has always been um, fascinating here, but, but now more than ever, I think there are incredible opportunities on that realm. And I'm all in on Denver. No, I, I don't necessarily plan to spend every day here for the rest of my life, but I do plan to always have um, my home here and, and be uh, very invested in the city. You're right. Uh, everything you just said about Colorado is dead on correct. Um, okay, so you're professionally, your first big exit, successful exit, so to speak, was Baker Technologies. Is that right? Was that, um, um, hmm. t- give us the short version there of uh, what you built in the exit so that the listeners can kind of get a feel for you know, you as an entrepreneur, because that, was that, that wasn't your first company, but that was your first big exit, correct? Correct. Okay. All right. So let's put ourselves back in our shoes of 2014. Colorado, Oregon, and Washington were legalizing recreational cannabis use. Uh, dispensaries were opening their doors with licenses to sell cannabis as products. And it was a very progressive time, but also a bit of a wild west. You had these stores that were ultimately like 7-Eleven selling products. No real difference when it comes down to it but also not able to accept credit card payments. So everything was happening in cash. It Mm. made for a very, very frenzied customer experience because we had people from across the country and the world flying into these states to experience a legal cannabis purchase. And so you would have these stores with lines out the door. Meanwhile, a local who might be a mother or a business person or an elderly person that's waiting to get their medicine for the week to help them with their headaches, their sleep, their nausea, their back pain, their tumors, what have you. They were waiting in line for up to an hour just to have access to their products. And so what we recognized is an opportunity to bring sophisticated technology and customer experience into these dispensaries. And we built this piece by piece with the first online ordering app and experience for cannabis. Uh If people know of things like Uber Eats or Grubhub or uh, seamless or DoorDash, you know, something like that, but for your cannabis, so high quality photos, a lot of great information about which products and strains and cannabinoid profiles, you know, you were buying, you'd order them, put them in your cart ahead of time, and then basically get there and skip the line. So now instead of the mother leaving her two kids in the car for 45 minutes, so she can get her medicine, uh, you've got fast experience that's better for everyone. And that became uh, a much bigger company. We, be, we became really known as the leaders in understanding who was buying which cannabis products, what kind of experiences were they getting? Were they benefiting? Were, were they having the right dosage? Were they were they uh, to consuming responsibly? And so our data set became extremely interesting to a lot of uh, um, uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of the, the pioneers that were building the industry. And by no means we were not in the business of selling data or selling anyone's private data by any means but just because that element existed and we kind of had a unique um a unique purview over the entire market so just for context we grew very quickly we had 50 percent market share across the country this is when cannabis grew to 30 states and we had 1400 dispensaries on our platform um Mm. you can imagine that's just a lot of 
um, insight into what's going on in what was previously a Wild West industry. And so for that reason, we were invited to join three other companies in a four-way merger. Uh, we raised $120 million and then bought three other companies. And as a combination between those seven, we then went public in the Can on the Canadian Securities Exchange. Nice. Wow. Congratulations. It sounds to me like it started off with you building a company to service people better, um, to create easier checkout, easier purchasing, and then it became a data uh, play. What, did you know that it was going to turn out? Was that a plan for you? Were you like, this is going to be a data grab. Somebody's going to eventually pay us a lot of money for this information. Was that a plan in the beginning or it formulated over time? It formulated over time, but fairly quickly. You know, to be honest, at first we simply saw a problem in the market and an opportunity yeah. that we knew right. how to solve. Um, yeah. Very quickly, within a year, we started to realize that this kind, this kind of data oh, was sure. valuable. And when I say valuable, I don't mean it's worth a hundred bucks for a piece of data. I just mean it's valuable to actually understand a new industry more clearly. And we didn't even mm -hmm. put dollars and cents on it. We just knew that it was interesting and important for transparency, for clarity, for better education, you know, even informing laws and policies, that kind of thing to have like more safe access to the right kind of medicines for people. And so that's what, what I mean when I say valuable. I just want to be very clear about that. But um, we also never ended up commercializing the data. We didn't make money off it. We didn't sell ourselves oh. to a company in order for someone else to buy the data or anything. It, it just It just built our value in the industry that we had that. Did you have M&A experience and cash raise experience of that size before this? Or for you, was that the first time like raising $120 million, buying these companies, doing these mergers? Was that a first for you or did you have that experience prior? It was definitely a first. I'd say it was 25 times larger than the previous experience of <laughs> fundraising and capital. Yeah. And, you know, I was definitely, uh, along with my co-founders, we were all just young, ambitious, scrappy entrepreneurs trying to figure it out and making a ton of mistakes. I mean, I honestly say to all of my friends who are entrepreneurs that it's a good thing if you have a, a failure or a, you know two mm. steps forward, one step back experience, or if things don't work out to plan, you change your plans, you could be, you, know, you learn to become nimble and roll with, uh, with the waves. Um, and that's almost unavoidable in especially an emerging market. It's, it's, it's part of the fun in my eyes. What's one of the biggest um, things you learned? What was one of the biggest learning lessons? If you had to pick one or two, was it like I didn't raise enough cash to raise, raise too much, uh, brought in the wrong co-founders, brought in the wrong investors? What like, what were a couple of learning pieces where you're like, okay, phew, damn it, uh, mm. do differently next time? Mm. I think a consistent one, which many entrepreneurs come to learn is it's so tempting to spend money when you have it and there's something called parkinson's law which is a sort of psychological principle which is that we as humans tend to use the resources at hand for the task at hand and so if you are given as an example a week to write an essay you'll take a week if you're given a month you'll take a month you'll more or less come out with a similar <laughs> quality of essay but you just take the time at hand and the same goes for money and you know when you're a fast-paced uh, kind of darling of the the startup world, especially, you know, the whole world was looking at cannabis, the green rush was happening, there was money flowing in, a lot of greed, a lot of uh, ego and, and, and haste, I would say. And that meant that we had access to more money, which 
is great, but it also meant we spent more. We built the team to a hundred people much more quickly than we probably needed to. And, okay. um, and that lesson has definitely percolated into the work I'm doing now. And I still continue to have to remind myself of that. It's a sort of effort of humility and patience to, um, to really space things out at the appropriate time. And, and that's very difficult when you have investors who are trained into a mindset to just move quickly, right? They want every portfolio company or entrepreneur they support to move as quickly as possible. And that's kind of the paradigm that emerged from the 90s and early 2000s was this mm-hmm. rapid hunger for growth. And I actually have come to believe that philosophically, that's not the right approach to building a company. And especially now when the markets are correcting, people are seeing capex is in a very different way by cap you know capital and i'm just seeing a very uh new sort of um fundamental mindset shift in Mm -hmm. the entrepreneur world and the venture world that i'm really hoping i'm helping to uh broadcast is is a good thing um so you know based on where the economy is at now and post-recession and where the housing market is at uh the capital markets in general are not flowing flooding new industries with with cash and so we all have to be a little more patient and really plan for um for for slow spending and really just doing what's essential where did the entrepreneurial bug come from how how did that even happen for you what how'd you get the the juice for it were were you i mean tell me because your your mom and dad weren't really on did it come from them or where'd that how did it build inside you Another good question. You know, I, since you bring up my mom and dad, I do think that there's a risk tolerance that I, I I received from them. Both of them, in very different ways, have a fairly high risk tolerance, and I'm um, I, I'm pretty convinced that that's a necessary component of it being is, an entrepreneur. No, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, and and not just for the initial risk, the initial you know, jumping off the springboard, but it's also that when things are going poorly and it's getting tough you had that grit which google found from their data analysis was one of the most um prescient qualities in a successful entrepreneur was simply the perseverance to move through it and i think uh risk tolerance is needed for that so i do i definitely uh give a lot of credit to my parents but i think there's another element which is that (laughs) if i can be really honest the movie the social network was a huge influence really Uh, yeah, it feels like a cliche to name Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, as one of my uh, inspirations for becoming an entrepreneur. But the truth is that I was building, you know, I was building my first business, but it was not a tech company. It was a, a, a educational conference, um, psycho- psychology business. And I went uh, in New York when I was much younger, early 20s. I went to watch that movie. And I remember coming home, we watched, uh, my, my ex-girlfriend and I watched the movie around 8 p.m., got home, she passed out, and I literally stayed up all night just inspired. I was completely buzzing with this this sense of ambition and realizing that the technology companies we uh, have had come to know, the technology platforms we used, like Facebook and Microsoft and Apple and all the others, uh, many of the others, they're not, cre- you know, previously I thought those were created by some power, higher power that's right. you know, whether it's sort of it's some, <laughs> some huge corporate machine that had, had yeah. given us these platforms. And you realize that it's actually young 
uh, ambitious kids with various other qualities that are just sitting in their garages or their attics kind of figuring it out. And that uh, paradigm shift was an epiphany for me. And that, and, and I realized if they can do it, I can do it. And that was the moment I, I really sensed that, you know, like I said, through buildings or other types of businesses, I might be able to impact a few thousand people, but through technology, I could impact millions of people. And that's I all that, that I needed. I love that. By the way, does the does the um, rapid advancement, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but before we you know get into my health, does the rapid advancement of AI and the technology around that, does it worry you at all? And let me even two part question. And then what do you what's the latest thought from you on this chat GPT and things like that type of AI, mm. if you don't mind? Yeah. I'm fascinated by it. I'm really fascinated by the topic, have been for many years. I think it's astounding or startling how quickly it's suddenly gone from science fiction to science. And we're, you know, we're, I'm, I was using chat GTP, GPT yesterday on my computer and it's just uh, as fluid and easy and useful as jumping on Instagram. It's unbelievable. Um, there is a, a lot that we don't know. I think there's a lot that certain very smart people in the world know, and for probably quite smart political or diplomatic reasons, they're not necessarily sharing everything they know with the rest of us. I don't mean to say that in any kind of conspiracy theory type sense, but just that there's a a, a depth and a, a dimension of importance to this innovation that most of uh, us as pedestrians are n- not even aware of, much less True. skilled in in interpreting into our projections for the future. So it would be futile for me to, to ramble on about what I think will happen with AI. I think we there are enough science fiction movies. I do have the um, general philosophy, which I learned from my my wife, which is that the science of tomorrow is created by the fiction writers and designers of today. And we've seen that in examples of you know, ranging from comic books that led to spaceships of the real world, you know, and yes. other things like that, right? right? Yes. Communication devices that felt like they could only exist on Star Trek. And now I've got one here on my desk and, you know, it happens. Um, so we can really look to art and fiction um, to and, uh, and, and get a sense of what might be happening. But then there are all, all sorts of surprises as well that I find really fascinating. And ultimately, it, it comes down to, at least within the foreseeable future, in my opinion, it comes down to our culture, uh, of the culture of our society and our community. And I think that what people um, maybe overlook often, and something I uh, often love, like to invite others to contemplate, is that we're all actors on the field we don't need to be spectators in the stadium so you know we can all whether you work in technology or not whether you are involved in the ai space or not we all have the ability to make some impact and sort of be the change we want to see in the world if you will and and i think there's um a lot of uh, empowerment that people are leaving on the table on this topic agreed by the way, just one thing on the chat GPT, when I first learned about it, I, I remember when I signed up, I thought, okay, let me, let me go check this out. Let me, let me see what's going on. And I played with it for just a few minutes. And then I got a call from one of my recruiters at RiderFlex. And uh, she said, Hey, this client doesn't think that uh, the CEO search that we're doing should, should include an equity package for the CEO. 
And of course, I'm I'm thinking to myself, all right, let me let me. I need to educate this client on why you need an equity package for a CEO search. And so I, I happen to have Chat GPT open, and I just put in I put in, um, give me two paragraphs on why a CEO candidate should have equity. Boom! It's <laughs> within three seconds, it wrote something more eloquent than I could have done, <laughs> and I was like, and I did that. I'm like, holy shit, holy shit! I told my wife, I'm like check this out. Like, look at, look at this. Like, wow. Anyway. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm like you, I'm totally fascinated by it. And I'm a big believer in staying positive about it and, and, and figuring out the best way for it to help you and your company, not, not hiding from it or being scared of it. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, when, um, websites emerged, call it in around the eighties, you know, and they started asking people to put their credit card information into the website, right? I remember. People were not up for that. People were That's scared right. of it. People wanted to run in the other direction. That's and right. I think there's a similar thing as we've seen from technological innovation in many other examples since then that it, it's really irrelevant whether you like it or not. It's more That's important right. to ask, is this the way the world is going? And how am I going to use that for the benefit of myself, my family, Bingo. my people I care about? Totally agree. How did you, why cannabis, why psilocybin, what, why, how did that, where did that interest come from for you? Mm. Well, such an important topic right now, as you probably know, we yeah. just passed the bill, Prop 122 in Colorado to legalize access to some of these compounds. And for anyone listening who doesn't know, psilocybin, the psychoactive compound within certain species of mushrooms, uh, it can occasion a, a psychedelic experience and there are lots of different types of there are about 250 to 350 species we know of that have different uh, sort of uh, compositions of psychedelic properties in them that species of different mushrooms so lots of different experiences there's no one size fits all or single recipe here but that is where um, the people who are real uh, forward thinkers and, and, I, and, and in my opinion, you know, really looking at mushrooms in a way that is less contaminated by some of the propaganda since the 1970s, the Reagan-Nixon era. Um, there is a history of psychedelic mushroom use throughout our species and, and, and anthropology for up to 10,000, from say 14,000 years, um, as far as sort of rock cave paintings and other records show us from archaeological evidence so it's really i'm just going to mention there's a few different uh, sort of, uh bookmarks for anyone listening who might want to read further uh, about this topic uh to kind of ground us in the context of, of what's happening here in colorado and so that's where we're at happy to return to that topic for me personally i was introduced by some close friends from my new york chapter uh I was thankfully introduced in a very, very intentional way to a psychedelic experience. You know, when I say intentional, I mean, we weren't just popping a pill or, yeah. you know, whatever it is that, that, you know, that happened to sound exciting or the cool kids were doing. It was something that these people had real experience with and, and they invited me to set an intention, which I've since learned is a very important mm -hmm. aspect of taking a psychedelic. Uh, it really helps to direct the experience almost like you could either jump in a car and drive around in any which direction or you could jump in a car and have a map with a destination in mind and it's really that kind of difference um 
And so I was introduced in that kind of uh, very, very ceremonial type of container, non-religious, but ceremonial nonetheless. And that fortunately led me to have many other extremely, uh, for me, groundbreaking breakthroughs in my personal journey. I came to realize things about myself, um, about what it is to exist, to be me, to have the relationships I had. I was able to process um, family love, romantic love, other things in different ways uh, than I had had access to before. So didn't take more than that for me to be fascinated by the topic. I started reading more fascinating books like um, The Cosmic Serpent and Supernatural um, and The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide are some I would recommend to readers. Uh, Since then, many know Michael Pollan's book, um, How to Change Your Mind, which has made a massive impact across the world on this topic. And so I learned more, I talked to more people, I had different experiences in different types of, of settings. Okay. And then going back to Baker Technologies 2014, we're building this cannabis technology company. I've never actually been a cannabis user. I've tried it a few times, but I've never been a consistent user. And uh, it just hasn't felt that that inviting to me. It hasn't felt like it was something I needed or wanted in my life. Interesting. And without judgment, I just mean it wasn't for me. Okay. Uh, but I did believe strongly that it was for lots of people and that cannabis should be made available in safe and legal ways. So I wanted to work on that. But really, when certain friends asked me, you don't use cannabis, why are you building this cannabis company? I told them that it's because I thought psilocybin mushrooms would be next. And if I could do a good job in the cannabis space, then I would be well positioned. I would have learned more, have more credibility. And I could then work in the psychedelic mushroom space that would then lead into working with other psychedelics. And turns out now, even though I thought that might be a 15 or 20 year journey, four years later, I was working on the Denver psilocybin policy initiative to reform uh, the psilocybin laws here. And that was successful come early 2019. Uh, so then from there, I gathered with two of my co-founders, Del Jolly, who you know, and another Heather yes. Jackson, another wonderful yes. woman here in Denver. Yes. Um, yes. And we co-founded a nonprofit. We worked with Johns Hopkins University and some famous researchers there to create funding and study design for worldwide research into mushrooms. And that's now become the largest, one of the largest psilocybin studies in the world, which I'm really proud of. Uh, And that naturally segued into building Maya Technologies, which is the company I run today with an amazing team. Okay. Um, I want to get, uh, uh, you know, an overview of Maya, but let me ask you real quick for the listeners, will you tell them, by the way, Heather Jackson, Del Jolly, good good friends of ours. And in fact, I think Riderflex did some recruiting for Unlimited Sciences at, at one point. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who, who we put there. But um, yeah, great folks. Love Dale. Uh, mm-hmm. Awesome guy. He's tried to get me to to travel with him. He, I think travel is the word he uses. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I haven't done it yet. So for, so for me, for the listeners, that cannabis is a recreational use for me. And um, but I've never... I've never done psilocybin of any kind, but, but I want to, and I'm trying to get something planned for the listeners. Will you kind of a commoner, like how would you describe the difference between using a little bit of cannabis to get quote high and, and, and laugh and have a good time and doing a planned scheduled ceremonial thing with a psilocybin 
how would you describe the difference? Hmm. I like to speak in metaphors sometimes for these kind of questions. So okay. you can imagine there's a difference between pouring yourself a beer at home on your own on a Tuesday night versus going to, uh, uh, for example, to a, a bar and sitting opposite a bartender who's telling you about, or maybe a mixologist who's telling you about the artisanal cocktail that he's crafted and designed and and, and telling you about the aromas, the experience you're going to have, you know, for that matter, even a wine sommelier telling you about the great varietals and the wine that you're drinking. Mm. And, and, mm. and there's almost a level of reverence for the experience that is one component. Um, I, do, I personally don't necessarily believe that one is better than the other. I'm just pointing out some of the differences by way of metaphor. And there's also this element that psychologically, when we're in a social dynamic, with another person where they are in a position of authority, maybe taking on that mentor or teacher type role. And we are in the student learner mentee type role. We have another type of reverence, which is that uh, what Buddhists would call a beginner's mind. And I think that that's a very powerful thing because it, it helps disarm the ego. It helps relinquish the sort of masks and facades and protective psychological barriers that we've put up just to survive on the planet and instead allows us to be open to what's possible and open in all sorts of ways, learning, healing, overcoming unhelpful thought patterns, you know, healing relationships of different types. And, and in the same way, when somebody chooses to work with a trained guide, whether that be a shaman or a therapist or a coach or even clinician, with any one of the psychedelic compounds, they are allowing themselves to be in that receiver's mind with a person who can um, guide them through that experience, hold a safe space that they can uh, benefit and learn from. And it, again, takes a level of intentionality to put ourselves in that position. Some people feel like that's a position of weakness or it's sort of like admitting that they might not have it all together and i believe that no one has it all together you know even the strongest navy seal <laughs> has has complete breakdowns and needs help and i think the more that all of us in society recognize that that's not a weakness it's a strength to be uh humble and to be vulnerable the the faster we can all heal from this kind of societal anxiety and depression and trauma that we're all trying to move through is the shaman there for physical safety because I might get, I might take too much and I might walk around and not know where I'm at and walk in the middle of the street in front of a car and they're there to gu guide me. Or are they there as psychologically to keep my mind um, focused on what the goal was, was in the first place or both? A little of both and more than that. Um, okay. When you say if your mind focused on, the intention of uh, yeah. that was set that you know that can be a part of it, but a well-trained or experienced guide also knows when it's actually the time for you to stray from that path and go off in a different direction. Maybe the intention changes in the middle of the ceremony, so it's not as mm. prescriptive um, and dogmatic as maybe other types of medicine okay. or therapy or what have you. Um, it's much more of an art form than a science at this point, in my opinion. And so that's where having somebody who's experienced and wise 
is helpful because when you're in the yeah in the in the um call it the mind of the patient or the client you're not expected to be the expert right that is actually counterproductive mm -hmm. okay very good well we could do a whole nother two hours on just just that you know taking the taking the trip so to speak or traveling or i know there's a bunch of different words they use but uh, <laughs> we could do we could do two more hours on it maya health so give, give us the overview uh and it's m-a-y-a health.com for the listeners that's David right. Champ David Champion also on LinkedIn and lots of followers there and you can you can learn more about him there. Um, give us the overview if you don't mind. Go for it, David. Mm. Well, just as the story I described of the early cannabis uh, the industry and and the the market was emerging in 2014 and onwards in around 2019 we we made this change in Denver and it was the first major sort of political shift for the country that has now led to over a hundred other cities and towns around the country developing similar types of campaigns. And for those who don't know, Oregon, a couple of years ago, passed a statewide initiative to legalize access to psilocybin mushrooms through trained guides and licensed facilitators. Colorado has now just done the same thing recently, uh, different thing, but a related thing statewide. Um, there are valid initiatives being developed for at least five other states around the country. So there is this snowball effect starting to become apparent. And um, we actually got the news just this week that MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, uh, really one of the leaders in science regarding, in their case, MDMA as a treatment for PTSD. So people like veterans, uh, others who have experienced trauma, who have not been helped by traditional Western uh, pharmaceutical medicines um, are finding an incredible, incredible, like completely paradigm shifting level of healing from MDMA, which is one of the compounds found in ecstasy. Again, very stigmatized, often used in the wrong yes. way, often used yes. in a way that's harmful. Right. However, under the guidance of a trained professional and in the right setting with the right safety measures, turns out it can be extremely helpful. And so we've now just got the news that MAPS has passed FDA phase three trials, a massive step for the uh, general movement. And they're predicting that by Q2 of 2024, there will be essentially what people knew of as ecstasy available at clinics across the country, legally and covered by insurance. This kind of a shift is happening like under our feet right now. Wow. And so that's a little bit of context for folks who, who might not have been tracking this news over the last few years. The problem is that psychedelic experiences are really complex. They're multifaceted. They they involve many different moving parts that is very hard for that would be very hard for traditional academic science to really understand. Um, and when I say really understand, I'm I'm choiceful with my words because yes, an academic study can determine with statistical significance that this compound, this psychedelic is going to help these types of people. And we have the, the data to show it from certain controlled uh, studies or clinical trials. However, there are thousands and thousands of different variables, different things that need to be studied. And so a couple of years ago, what I realized is that we need a data science approach. And this means inviting thousands, tens of thousands, hopefully millions of people across the world who are choosing 
to use psychedelics in a legal way. That happens in all sorts of uh, different legal territories, different countries. Uh, for example, in America, ketamine can be delivered legally in clinics across the country. And we essentially offer a platform that helps the psychedelic practitioners and their patients to um, save time, save money, learn more in the process of doing psychedelic treatments or psychedelic therapies. And in doing so, they're contributing their uh, learning. So they're con contributing to the broader movement, contributing to the entire ecosystem of psychedelic work. And this data that we're aggregating is done so with a lot of transparency and a lot of privacy, a lot of attention to okay. individual privacy. Okay. So no one's personal health information is ever going to become visible to anyone, not even us, um, and various other measures that we've taken. Um, ultimately, the goal, though, is to inform the entire industry, both in America and across the world, as to how psychedelics can be delivered in the safest, most effective, and most accessible ways for people who need them. It's okay. As you're building this, you're doing this research and building this data, what's the business model for Maya Health? How are you, are the, are the practitioners paying you or am I as a client paying? How, how are you making money? <laughs> the practitioners, exactly. So a range of individual, private practitioners, therapists, coaches, clinics, as well as retreats uh, and researchers, they um, pay a nominal amount. We're talking about, you know, a hundred, a few hundred dollars a month kind of thing okay. Um, okay. for the use of the platform, which helps them across a number of, of different value propositions. But um, that revenue comes in to fund us being able to hire amazing engineers and, and develop the platform. And I can find my practitioner, like if I wanted to find somebody to help me, coach me, guide me and take me on a travel, I go to my health and connect with somebody or am I misunderstanding? We wouldn't necessarily uh, be the first stop for that. So there are other directories like third wave directory and psychedelic.support. Uh, okay. These are two that I often recommend. And there are several others, Psychable and others that are doing a great job of starting to aggregate the different psychedelic professionals and then letting people who want to find them find them just as you would on ZocDoc or a psychology okay. today type platform um, where Maya comes in is once you would be actually working with a psychedelic professional, then you begin the journey in Maya and we help you essentially get a better experience with more transparency into how your own um, psychology, your own uh, level of wellness and quality of life, how those things are changing over time so that you can truly understand whether you're benefiting. Um, because how many of us are told that we should go on this diet or have this exercise routine or do this next fad, but we don't have any way of actually measuring or tracking whether that's been a good investment of our money and, and energy. And so what we're looking to do is help people understand whether what they're doing with psychedelics is working, what they could change, how they could improve, and ultimately help the practitioners really understand that so they can offer better quality of care to people as well. Is it more for my mental improvement and my psychological uh, improvement or is it physical or both? Can absolutely be both. Um, for example, somebody I know who had a stroke and then found it, uh, that there was an impediment in her speech for, for, for quite a long time 
um, recently started to microdose, which means taking a subperceptual dose of psilocybin mushrooms, and miraculously started to find that her speech wow. was improved, more fluent, um, things like that. People uh, receiving incredible uh, benefits in terms of eating disorders and back pain and, and um, uh, cluster headaches, various other physical or uh, physiological ailments. Um, but usually psychedelics are currently being delivered for psychological reasons and mainly uh, treatment of disorders such as depression, anxiety, this kind of thing. Okay, very good. I know that we're backing up here on the end of this uh, scheduled time. Do you have Do you have time for two more questions? Uh, what? How are you doing? You have, do you have a hard stop? I got two more. I would. I, I do have a call starting now. I told them I might be a few minutes late, so if we could, I'll wrap it up. I'll conclude. wrap it up. With, I'll wrap it up with this. Um, and it is mayahealth.com. I see where you have uh, one billion people in the world suffering from mental health disorders right on the website. I read the other day, one in five Americans will have some sort of mental health issue uh, this year, uh, mm. or every year or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I do believe mental health is the overarching problem of so many other things like the homeless situation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And if, and if, you know, if psychedelics can improve that and, and your company can help gather all that information and, and data and, and, and it helps society overall with, with mental health. Great. We, we could sure use it because, you know, improving mental health will solve so many other things in the country for sure. Mm, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for pointing that out. Congratulations on what you've built, my friend. I'm fascinated by it. I would love to have you back on the show. We're going to have to get you back on because we could go so much <laughs> deeper. But um, thank you very much. Congrats on, congrats on your other exit as well. And uh, we're wishing you the best as things move forward, my friend. Steve. Such a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation and thank you to everyone who listened. It would be a pleasure to come back on with you and we'll stay in touch. In the